Hear that? It's the sound of you catching up on all the latest and greatest fintech news, trends, and updates thanks to Streetworthy, Yield Street's bi-weekly newsletter. Stay in the know with CEO Melinda Mahiri as he takes a closer look at what's happening in the fintech space, then breaks down what each story could mean for investors like you. Give your portfolio the edge it deserves and subscribe to Streetworthy on LinkedIn today. Welcome to The Yield, the official podcast of Yield Street. Every week, we bring you the latest market insights across our asset classes and products from subject matter experts. Our aim is to break the outdated mold of investing and help you add financial fuel to your ambitions through innovative investing products and strategies, typically unavailable to most investors. Realize your next level with The Yield. Subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. The views you are about to hear do not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street. This podcast is intended to be strictly informational and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a research report, investment advice, or the offer or sale of securities or any investment product. Now, let's get into the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of The Yield. Make sure to subscribe to the show and rate us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or YouTube, and leave a review if you're enjoying the content. In case we haven't met before, I'm your host, Peter Kerr and I'm the Director of Product Marketing here at Yieldtreat. Today, I'm joined by Sean O'Hara, Studio Analyst at the NFL Network, Super Bowl 42 champion with the New York Football Giants and member of the New York Giants broadcast team. Sean, welcome to the show. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me. It's always a pleasure to, uh, to join uh, Yieldtreat with all of the engagement that you guys have. I've been to a couple of events with you guys, and you guys are always first class with everything you do. So I appreciate you me on. And it's an honor to represent the New York Giants. Uh, to all you Giants fans out there, keep the faith, okay? Listen, I know I appreciate you. I feel like I've been a Giants therapist for the last couple of years, telling people don't jump, don't, don't sell your tickets, don't give up your PSLs. This thing's coming full circle. And I have no doubt that Joe Shane and Brian Dable have got this thing back on track. And uh, we're going to make you guys proud very soon. Well, a lot to unpack there, which I want to circle back to, especially um, when you look at kind of the last five years or so, and you see the Giants for the first time in, in as long as I can remember, you know, not really being in the upper echelon of the pack. But um, to start, I thought maybe you could walk everyone through a little bit about your background uh, and certainly, you know, let everyone know um, a little bit about your playing career too. Yeah, Peter, I appreciate the introduction. Um, obviously, you know, a lot of times I get introduced as a Super Bowl champion and three times Pro Bowler, and, you know, a lot of people kind of see that. And, and to me, I, I call that the finish line. That, that's like you, you've, you've finished the race, here are the medals, here are the ribbons, here's all the accolades, and people kind of see that. But what they don't see is, you know, how you started, you know, where you were in the pack when that marathon started. And they don't see that you puked uh, in mile 10. Uh, of the marathon. And so just to kind of peel back the uh, hands of time for a second. I was in Chicago, but moved around a lot when I was younger. I moved to New Jersey in high school. I went to Hillsborough High School, which is in Somerset County. So I consider myself an, an urban cowboy. I've got, I've got Jersey in my blood starting in high school. And then I went to Rutgers. And then of course I played for the New York Giants. So call it the trifecta. I played football at all three levels in New Jersey very proud of that. Not many people can say that they played at all three levels in their home state. So that, that, that's something that, I, that I'm, I'm very honored to have achieved and, and very proud of. At Hillsborough High School, I was a three-sport athlete, football, basketball, and track. During high school, I was 225 pounds. So I'm living proof that you don't have to get a Division I scholarship coming out of high school to make it in the NFL. I always had aspirations of playing in the NFL ever since I was five years old. I would tell people that's what I was born to do. And I kind of like knocking people on their ass. So that, that was seemed like the right sport to me that appreciated much in basketball or any other sport when you did that. But in football, they, they patted you on the back and said, do it again. So uh, that was for me. But I was considered undersized coming out of high school. So I walked on at Rutgers. That's something I, I like to share with people. They don't always know that. But I feel like it's, it's important to share that because look, Every year, kids think about the thousands of kids that are playing high school football, and there's only so many scholarships. And just because you don't get a scholarship in high school, I tell kids all the time that, that that's not an end game. You, you could still earn one. So I walked on at Rutgers in 1995 as a defensive end, and then I kind of morphed over the years into an offensive lineman. Once they realized slow, uh, they said you'd be better suited on the other side of the field. So 
I moved to offense and then I became a left tackle for the Scarlet Knights. And then my senior year at Rutgers, I started getting some interest from some NFL teams and some coaches saying that, hey, some scouts are coming around and, and you know they're, they're asking about you. So I was kind of on the radar. But just like my, my walk-on experience from high school to college, I went undrafted. So I technically walked on to the NFL as well. So it, it's kind of um, a reoccurring theme for me. And I like to share that with people too, because I didn't get a scholarship and I didn't get drafted. There's always a back door, all right? You know, look, you, you, everybody wants to walk in the front door, get the red carpet rolled out and have the big parade when they show up. But, you know, there's more than one way to make an entrance. So I, I technically walked on and I signed as a free agent with the Cleveland Browns. I played there for four years. And then I became a free agent and I came home to play for the New York Giants. So um, I'll bore you with a very quick story. And I like to, to, to tell this to high school kids, college kids. I always tell them, go see mom. All right. Here's my story. I'm, I'm living in Cleveland. I'm playing for the Cleveland Browns. I'm training. It's January, February. The season has ended. I know I'm a free agent, but I'm trying to show to the Browns that I want to be a Cleveland Brown. So I'm trying to get them to offer me a long-term contract. Didn't work out so much. So my agent said, look, go home, you know, do go on vacation, do whatever you want before free agency starts. It's going to be crazy. So I'd never gone through it before. So I took his advice and, and I said, you know, I'm going to drive home. Cleveland, Ohio to New Jersey, to Hillsborough, New Jersey, where my parents lived at the time. And I'm going to spend a little time with them before um, I go on this free agency frenzy and, and figure out where my next team is going to be and my next job. So I'm, I'm having dinner with my parents on Friday night. My agent calls Friday night and says, hey, you're flying to Arizona on Sunday morning. I'm going to go visit the Cardinals. They really like you. Um, he calls me back Saturday morning and says, hey, late last night I was talking to the Giants. They were about another player, and they asked about you. And they asked if they could bring you in for a visit before you go to Arizona. And they asked where you were. And I said, well, actually, he's in New Jersey visiting his parents. So that got the ball going. Lo and behold, the Giants put the full court press on. They said, we want you to come up and visit us before you go to Arizona. They didn't want to let me get on the plane. So I got in the car, and I drove up on Saturday met with Tom Coughlin, met with the Giants brass, met with the coaches, and we agreed to a, a contract in principle that night, Saturday night, and I never got on a plane in Arizona. So I always tell guys, good things happen when you go see mom. It's <laughs> a great story. You, you mentioned to start your passion around the Giants, right? So I'm curious, like, what about the Giants really made you want to, um, you know, after your playing career ended, really continue to be involved with the organization. And certainly we mentioned up front that you're still part of the New York Giants broadcasting team. And it sounds like overall, you know, you're, you're still remain very passionate about the Giants overall. Well, first and foremost, the, the Giants, it's a special organization for a number of reasons. Um, but I think, you know, ownership reflects leadership and, and, and leadership, you know, reflects. And, and I think when you look at the Mara family, the Tish family, the way that they run the Giants, you know, it's in their blood. Like this is not, Hey, you know, we made a ton of money doing something else and we decided to buy a team because we were bored because we wanted something to do on Sunday. No, this, the, the, the giants have been in the family since it existed. And um, I think when you are around the family, when you're around the organization and you see the impact that it has on this family, look, they're at every game that, you know, to this day, I'll never forget, Wellington Mara standing in the locker room, whether we won a game or whether we lost a game, he was on there every single time to shake hands with the players and the coaches as we came in. And he was much, he was more visible in losses than in wins, which is kind of contrary to what you see from a lot of owners. So the, just the impact that that had on, on me as a player and, and the rest of my teammates um, and spending time in that building, you, you realize how much the giants mean to them. So I started off, you know, in just talking to Giants fans about how tough it's been. So, you know, look, the, the, for Giants fans, as bad as, as it may have been for you or as tough as it may have been for you or as much as you may have been hurting, believe me, nobody is hurting more than the Mara Tish family. When, when they lose, I mean, it's, the, the week for that whole family is you know, they're in dire straits and nobody talks at the dinner table. You know, they, they wear it. On, on their on their their hearts um so when you see the passion that they have for the team and really the family atmosphere that that creates 
um, and, and not just from the owners, but from everybody that works for the Giants. Um, you know, I, I have so much respect for everybody in that building. And I know that it's not a job for the people that work for the Giants. It, they, they, they really love the blue. They love the NY. And there's anything that they wouldn't do for them. So that that is something that I experienced firsthand. And then, you know, look, when you win a Super Bowl with a team and with a franchise and you have a chance to experience the game on, on the grandest scale, on the grandest stage, you know, there's a bond there that that will never go away. And it's, it's something you accomplish together. You share that journey together and it's it becomes a, a huge part of your life. And a huge part of the history of the New York Giants. So that I think obviously creates a bond that just lives on in perpetuity. And I think, you know, when you make a turn down, down Broadway in New York city, and it's called the Canyon of heroes and, and a memorable parade. And when you see the entire city of New York pouring out of buildings and streets and hanging out of windows to show love for the New York Giants and you see the owners and, and you know how much that means to them. You know, th those are things that will are forever ingrained in your memory. So you bring up a lot of things that I, I really am going to have to hold off on following up on for now. And hopefully we'll get to them uh, a little bit later. Um, Cause we do also want to talk quite a bit around the business aspects of football before we do though. I just want to, you know, just understand more from like a leadership standpoint. Um, you mentioned the Maras and the Tishes and how much this is kind of in their blood and how much they, for lack of a better term, really suffer through some losses, you know, maybe just quickly, how do you see them knowing that they've got, you know, a new staff in place? What do you think are some of the keys for them to kind of turn the ship or write the ship overall um, and kind of bring the franchise back? Yeah, great question. And, you know, what write the ship is, is a great slogan. And, and I think it's very appropriate because, you know, uh, the, the giants and any franchise in the NFL, it's, it's not just a ship. I mean, we're talking about like a cruise ship, like a huge boat, like, and those things don't turn very fast. Right. I mean, it, it takes a while to turn a ship around and, and that's kind of where they're at. But I think, you know, first and foremost, look, I don't, I don't care who your quarterback is. I don't care who your running back is. I don't care who your receiver is. This game is about blocking. It's about blocking and tackle. And the giants have struggled to block for the last couple of years. So that is first and foremost, you know, it doesn't matter if it's Daniel Jones, if it's Josh Allen, or if it's Patrick Mahomes. We saw Patrick Mahomes lose the Super Bowl because they couldn't block the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. We've seen Aaron Rodgers get run out of his stadium because they couldn't block the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. So if you can't block people, then you don't have a good chance to win. And I think part of bringing Joe Shane in from Buffalo, bringing Brian Dable in from Buffalo, look, when, when Sean McDermott and Brandon Bean and, and Joe Shane, when they showed up in Buffalo, the cupboard was bare and they had, they have had to rebuild that team and that roster. They rebuilt the offensive line. Um, they did it draft and they did it through a couple of free agents as well. But when you look at what the bills team is now, the roster, the culture, that's a culmination of the last four and a half years or however long it's been since, since they took over and they've built things the right way. So I think that's really, that was the impetus for hiring Shane, bringing in a fresh new perspective. Joe, his specialty is college evaluation. He's been a huge part of the college personnel up in Buffalo. And look, when you have the fifth and the seventh overall pick in a draft, you, you better not mess it up. Like you don't want to be in this position again. Rarely would you, do you have two top 10 picks. So I think that was very critical for the Giants as they were going through that evaluation process of hiring a new GM. It needs to be somebody that, that has some expertise in evaluating these college players. And then for Brian Dable, his ability to cultivate a quarterback and his ability to layer concepts of an offense from every year, week to week, within a system with a young quarterback, I think that was a big part of the draw for him and the attraction for him when you look at what he's done with Josh Allen. So Brian Dable is a very accomplished coach. You know, people don't realize he's won Super Bowls with the Patriots, I think three or four. He was a part of them. Then he left the Patriots, went down to Alabama, won a national championship. Was He was there for one year and then left Alabama and went up to Buffalo. And then now he's had unbelievable success up on Buffalo. So when you look at the NFL game now, how it's morphed, you know, it's not just the NFL offense now. You're seeing the college game kind of start to, to, to create some blends in the NFL game with the RPOs, with the quarterback line plays. 
that's all stuff that he did down in Alabama. And he's been able to, been able to bring a lot of those wrinkles up with him to Buffalo. And now he's going to bring them to the New York Giants. So uh, I think first and foremost, they've got to find a way to fix the offensive line and fix the blocking aspect of it. And then from there, everything else will fall into place. I don't care what kind of play caller you are. If you can't handle first down, then second and third down don't don't really amount to a hill of beans. Oh, that's great. You know, I, I think one of the things you're saying too about, you know, writing the ship too, it's also this like philosophical alignment to get everyone kind of heading and focused on moving together in the same direction. And uh, certainly it feels as though with the, with the new staff in place, hopefully everyone's kind of aligned on this new philosophy and also kind of implementing a new system here to, uh, I don't want to say bring the giants to the new age, but, you know, again, uh, put all the, put all the players in the best position to have to, to their strengths overall. I'm kind of thinking a little bit more about, you know, this intersection that we were discussing before the show started about, you know, the dynamics of the business side with, with the players and football overall, you know, we, we know players tend to have uh, relatively high salaries due to their contracts, um, which often kind of times can be, you know, a large influx of money over a very short amount of time. Um, and I'm just kind of curious, you know, how, how do players overall think about managing their wealth, especially as, you know, they get large signing, signing bonuses or other, you know, large lump sum incomes. Yeah, it's a great question, Peter. And it's honestly, it's an ongoing struggle. And I think it's not something where, Hey, you know what, how do we fix this situation? And and it's, all right, we're going to do this to help fix the players. It's, it's so tough because, you know, the, the of an NFL player is so short. The average career is just under three years. So, you know, by the time players really start to figure things out, they're kind of on their way out. So it's really tough to, to try to get these young kids educated and, and to get them to, to look at the big picture. You know, I, I also I try to remind people, like a lot of these kids are 22 years old, some of them 21 years old. Sam Darnold was drafted and he couldn't even buy a beer legally. So like, think about how many 21 year old kids do you know that are walking around with a million dollars? How many 22-year-olds do you know that, that have a contract that guarantees them $5 million over the next three or four years? Like, that's just not common. And how does a parent give advice to their kid when they've never had that kind of money? You know, so it's like, well, I, they need to have somebody that they trust, somebody that can advise them financially. Well, for a lot of these players that get drafted, you know, they, they grew up living, you know, day to day, week to week, paycheck to paycheck. Um, some of them from single parent homes, you know, and so all of a sudden, you know, they never had more than a hundred dollars in their pocket. And now all of a sudden they they're getting a weekly check of $50,000. So it's, it's a whole nother world for them. Some of them never had a bank account. Some of them never had a credit card. There, there's so much to unpack there from an education standpoint, but I think that's where, you know, every, every player has to lean on his agent and your agent can really, he can help you grow your career. And sometimes we've seen agents that have really kind of handicapped players' careers. So I think that that's a very important part of the piece. Uh, a lot of players lean on their agents for advice, um, whether it's football advice, whether it's financial advice, whether it's you know, should I buy a house? Should I buy a car? Should I, what should I do? So that, that becomes a very big part of the learning aspect of young players. And I, and I feel like veteran players have such a strong voice. And I always felt a duty and, 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 and a responsibility once I became a veteran in a locker room to, to talk to these young guys and, and to let them know, like, hey, look, it's okay to say no to people. It's okay to say no to family members. Now, the, the one of the things that's extremely tough on young players is they come into the, the league and all of a sudden now they're, they're, they're making good money. You know what? Next, thing you know, they're, they're getting phone calls from family members. Hey, I need to borrow $10,000. Hey, I, I, you know, my car broke down. I can't, I, I need to borrow $5,000. I need to borrow that. I do that. It's, it's probably easy to, to say no to somebody who was a high school buddy was calling you up. But when that's your brother or your sister, or your mom, or your aunt, your uncle, somebody that really had an impact in your life, that's hard. How do you say no to that? So there are some people that have never had to experience that. And so they never had to say no to their aunt or their uncle. But you know, one of the things I learned from a veteran player that I played with in Cleveland was every season, he set aside a certain amount of money. And it was, whether it was $25,000 or $40,000, whatever it was. And he said, that's money that 
I will loan to family members or, you know, he, he had a plan, he, he capped it. And so he let them know that too. Like, look, I, I have certain amount once that's done, like you guys are done. Like, don't bother me. Don't ask me for anything. So the fact that he had a plan for that was, I think, very mature and, and very responsible. So those are things that, that players really have to deal with. And, you know, look, I think for most players, before you even get in the NFL, you realize that you're about to, to win the lottery, so to speak, and, and you're going to come into a lot of money. So, you know, there, there, there is this need for, I need a financial advisor who is going to protect my assets. And one of the things I encourage a lot of guys when they are, are getting into the NFL and once they have been in the NFL for a couple of years is don't for the, Hey, I've got a financial advisor. That's going to make me a ton of money on the, on the money that I'm made, that I've already made. I say, you're already doing the hard part. The hard part is making the money. Now you've got to keep it. So get a financial advisor. That's going to help you keep as much of that money as possible. He's going to budget things out. He's going to put you in, in, in investments that are, are not going to disappear overnight. You know, there's nothing worse for a player to, to put his head down on the pillow at night and have to worry about an investment, uh, the game of, of a big, you know, the week of a big game or, you know, on a Saturday night before he's preparing for something. So that's, you know, some of the advice that I've given to some of these young guys. And, you know, for a lot of the guys, they, they make great decisions. Um, they, they handle themselves well, but you know, every year you hear the horror stories about a guy who you know, got taken advantage of, you know, even guys that thought they were making the right decision, you know, you, you have to trust somebody with that. And, you know, people will prey on, on some of these young players. So it's definitely a challenge. It's, it's never going away. It's an ongoing battle, but I think the education aspect of it is the most crucial part of it in, in teaching these kids how to, like the biggest part is, you know, learn about it. Like if you know you're going to get like, I, I feel like we have tried to talk to, you know, the, through the NFLPA and through even like the player engagement, player development aspect and program of the NFL teams is if we have players that are aspiring to play in the NFL or that know they're going to get drafted, why don't we have a course in college that can help them with some of those you know, some of those aspects of finance, you know, like, Hey, do you know how to open a QuickBook? Do you know how to open a, a bank bank account? Do you know how to budget things? Do you know what a 401k is? Do you understand this? So that when they do get into a meeting with a financial advisor, it doesn't sound like it's, you know, a different language. And it doesn't, when they show you a slide, it doesn't look like hieroglyphics, you know, exactly what they're talking about. Yeah, it's it's interesting because a lot of the things that I'm I'm hearing as takeaways from you is that you know there's it's really important to have a plan and it's really important to kind of you know have a, a good solid round of preparation for lack of a better term, which is just kind of funny to me sitting here thinking about all these NFL players in particular for each play for the most part have a very defined plan and a very defined amount of preparation. So it's kind of funny to think about um, kind of translating some of that into their personal lives. You did mention some things around agents and financial advisors. I'm kind of curious, you know, you mentioned the agent kind of being the focal point of, of kind of the whole off the field relationship. How often do agents kind of have a predefined set of, let's say, financial advisors or other support uh, folks that they work with, or do they pretty much, you know, in each situation find and help, you know, vet the right person for the right individual? I think you're going to find that there are, the answer to that is both, you know, there, there are some agents that, they don't really want to deal with the financial aspect of it. They, they will make recommendations, but sometimes for agents to kind of be in bed with a financial buyer, you know, if something goes awry with a financial investment, you know, now the agent's going to get blamed for it. And it's like, Hey, you know what? Sometimes they don't want that, but there are some agents that say, Hey, look, you know what? Like I want to make sure that, you know, the money you make is going to be safe and you're not going to get taken for a ride. So I have somebody that I trust that, you know, that, that I, I you to partner with. So, um, you know, I think a lot of that too also depends on who you sign with as an agent. You know, if you're a top 10 pick, you're going to have, you know, some of the biggest agencies in, in, in the country coming after you. And a lot of those big agencies, they have marketing people, they have financial people. And even within those financial groups, they may have a couple of different people that you may have to choose from. Um, but I think the most important thing for that is, is the relationship with that person. You know, it's, it's very interesting to the relationship from a player to an agent, from a player to a financial advisor, because very rarely you're the boss, right? When you're a player, you are the boss 
you. You are in charge of uh, it's Sean O'Hara LLC. I'm a, I'm a company now. I'm in the NFL, and I'm the boss. I'm hiring an agent, but yet I don't know anything about this new job. I don't, I don't know anything about the landscape. So technically, the agent works for me, and I'm the boss, but I, he's the one that with all the knowledge. And so that's a little bit of a it's a it's a relationship like nowhere else in the world is that relation is the boss, the least experienced person in the room. So same thing with the financial advisor is, you know, I, I, I tell guys all the time, like, have a great relationship with them, challenge them, you know, like ask them questions and make them prove to you things and make them show you things, make them teach you things. Because the, the worst thing that you can hear a financial advisor say is, look, just give me the money and I'll handle it and you don't worry about it. That's when you're going to be in trouble when there's no checks and balances. So uh, that's something that, 22 year old kids have never had to do before. Like I, you basically have your company and now you have people on your payroll, your agent, your financial advisor, maybe your marketing guy, maybe, maybe a, a publicist, uh, maybe even you have your own strength and conditioning guy, maybe a nutritionist. So now all of a sudden you may have five or six employees kind of working under you. You're the boss and not, a, not everybody's comfortable in that role. But I think the relationship that you have with those people is, is very vital to the success of, of everybody. And, and outside of just, you know, what you mentioned to be some financial decisions primarily challenged by family members and, you know, some people seeking to, you know, uh, gain access to uh, one of the players' wealth anecdotally, or if any examples that you can do, you know, while keeping anyone anonymous that you feel comfortable with, what are kind of some of the examples of the bad decisions that people have made if there's any commonality between them? Yeah, I think, you know, a lot of bad investments started out with good intentions and started out with, hey, this is going to be great. You know, look, uh, you you invest $100,000 and we're going to triple your money and, and you know what, you're going to be a part of this restaurant or you're going to be part of this. I've experienced it myself, so I'll, I'll, I'll use my own thing. When I was playing for the Cleveland Browns, there was a restaurant slash nightclub that was very popular in Cleveland. And I got to be friends with the owner and, and one of the guys that was running it. And he said, look, I'm, we're going to start one of these in Pittsburgh. And for people, anybody that's been to Cleveland or Pittsburgh, it's the same damn city. All right. Cleveland's on a lake. Pittsburgh's on a river um, or a couple of rivers. But it's the same type of people, the same blue collar people. The, the football teams are the same. It's, it's a very similar city. So it was a no brainer. Like, yeah, hey, we're going to start one down in Pittsburgh. Great. So it was a, you know, it was a, a modest investment. It was $25,000. And I went in with a couple of other guys we were going to be silent investors. We didn't want anything to do with, you know, day-to-day operations. Um, it was going to be, Hey, look, we're, we're going to be investors in this, in this. And you know what, hopefully in four or five years we sell it and we'll make some money on it and it'll be great. I never saw a dime from that. The, the bar opened and closed in, in a year. And you know what, it was, a, it was a great lesson for me that, you know what, I'm not going to invest in something like that, that I can't be, I can't go and see and, and have my hands in and kind of be, uh, be present. And so that was something that personally, as far as business decisions and finance and, and purchases that I, that I've seen throughout my career, I remember a teammate of mine showed up, I think it was in October. So it was like week four, week five of the season. And he pulled into the parking lot and he had a brand new Mercedes. And I mean, a Mercedes S 500, he put brand new feet on it, which is brand new rims. I mean, this car was probably $105,000 stock and it was fully loaded And with the rims. I mean, we're talking about $125,000 that he probably spent and he bought it outright. Cars are depreciating asset, you know? And I said to him, would you ever give your financial advisor $125,000 and tell him to put it in an investment that's going to depreciate? And the answer is no, you're never going to do that. But that's just what you did to, with that car. Now, mind you, this was a player who was, it was his third year in the NFL. He had, was undrafted. He had made minimum his first two years and he was making minimum again, his third year. I think minimum that year was like $350,000. So after uncle Sam takes out about 45% of that, you know, $350,000, I mean, he, he, you're netting around $175,000 and you just spent $125,000 on that car. So now after this season, after you made all that money, if you saved every other penny, you would have $50,000 left to show and, and a nice car. That's just not a smart move. It's not, it, it doesn't make sense. But yet that happened time and time again. And the response from all the players was, well, that's the car that I should be driving. I'm, I'm a running back 
for the New York Giants. I play in the NFL. This is what people think I should be driving. And so that stigma is something that haunts NFL players of the past and it haunts NFL players to this day is the expectations of what you should be driving, what you should be wearing, where you should be living. That is, is pressure from the outside that you have to really, you have to be dil- very diligent uh, to fight against. And, and so, you know, you mentioned so much about like this need for education and certainly you mentioned starting, you know, especially with some high potential uh, college level players and trying to get some of the basic financial um, education done then. But you also were, I think, a club representative uh, for the NFLPA which I imagine is a very large advocate for its players overall, just knowing that their financial wealth is obviously tremendously beneficial for all the players within the union. Um, maybe you could kind of just walk everyone through what really is the role of the NFLPA besides collective bargaining agreements and what else does uh, the NFLPA kind of do to help support players? Yeah, the NFLPA is, you know, really, they are there to protect the players and to represent the players and to try to basically get as much get as many benefits as they can for the players. So, um, you know, the, the, the players union is what the NFLPA is. And it's basically, it's all the players came together, created this union so that they could create standard working conditions and equal pay, you know, back before all of this happened before there was an NFLPA, like their players didn't know what other players on other teams were making. So you could have a tight end playing for the Indianapolis Colts making $75,000 a year and a tight end from the New York Giants making $200,000 a year. And that tight end in Indianapolis was a better tight end than the one for the New York Giants, but they, they never knew because the information was never shared. So that, that is, in essence, why the NFLPA was created. I got involved in the NFLPA as a young player when I was playing for the Cleveland Browns. It was my third year in the NFL, and I – sat in a couple of meetings. We, we would have one meeting, usually every month or every two months, we would have a meeting uh, to kind of discuss some of the benefits that you have once you're in the NFL, as well as some of the programs that, that they have to, to help further your education, uh, different tools, different support systems that are in place to help out young players. And I would sit in these meetings and I was, my head was spinning, you know, the, they said, hey, we're, everybody needs to sign up for this 401k. And then you guys got to sign this form for the, G, the group licensing agreement, the GLA. And that you're going to get a royalty check from that group licensing agreement. And, you know, this was all stuff that was new to me. And I'm trying to wrap my head around it. What is a group license? What's a GLA? I don't know what that is. What, what are royalties? What's what's a 401k? What's an annuity? What is a severance pay? What, what are all these things that I've never heard before? So I started asking questions you know, after the meeting you know, about it, cause I wanted to know. And one of the guys that worked for the NFLPA said, you know, you should look into becoming a player rep because you're obviously interested in this and curious about it. So I, I took the advice and I said, yeah, you know what? I'll, I, I want to help out. What do I do? And they said, you know what? We're, every year you, the players vote on player reps. And so, you know, when the vote comes up for next year, you know, put your name on the list and, your, your teammates will vote for who they want to represent them. Usually it was two player reps per team. So I did just that in my third year. I, I got as a, a player rep along with Ryan Keel. He was the main player rep. I was the assistant player rep. And it was enlightening. And, and it, was, um, it was empowering from a standpoint of I, I got an education on all of the vehicles and all the support that is out there for players that I never knew existed. And I knew that if I didn't know that these things existed, I know I know darn well that these other 25 guys don't know that that exists. So that really kind of became my purpose for being a player rep was to educate my teammates, to make sure that they understood all the, the benefits that were available to them and help them during their time, whether it was a short career or a long career, to try to maximize their time in the NFL. And that was something that I really took a lot of pride in. I was very honored to, to represent my teammates and and my team as a member of, of the union and the NFLPA. And I'll share a quick story. You know, there, the NFLPA has grown so much from when I first started there, but I mentioned 401k. So here is a, a, an interaction that, that took place after a meeting that we had in Cleveland. We all, it happened a couple of times too, when I was with the New York Giants, we sat to hand out forms in these team meeting rooms. Now, you would think it would be easy to get guys to come to a player rep meeting, but 
usually they're at four o'clock on a Friday or after practice. And everybody just wants to get out of there and get, and get home. So you would have to kind of dangle a carrot, like, hey, there may be a royalty check. Um, for anybody that goes to the meeting and stays till the end, you know, we'll hand out the checks at the end. That was a way that we would kind of get them all to show up. But we would hand out forms to everybody in that meeting room. And it was a 401k form. And it basically, you had to sign the form in order for the NFLPA to deduct a weekly amount from your salary to invest in the 401k. And the 401k at that time, I think was a $10,000 donation or, or the deferrent payment from the player. And then it was a two to one match by the club. So if they're putting $10,000, the club matched it with $20,000. So at the end of one year, you had $30,000 in a 401k. And the conversations that were had by players, I'm not signing this thing. They're going to take $10,000 of my money. Heck no, I'm not doing that. And it was mind boggling to try to wrap, get, Wrap their heads around. No, no, this is like free money. You're going to get $20,000. All you're doing is taking money, the $10,000 out of your right pocket, you're putting in your left pocket, and they're putting $20,000 in that left pocket. You can't touch that money for a while, but the whole point of it is long term growth, long term savings. So it, it, it was, we literally every year it was five or seven guys that would just wrestled you with this decision. And I would stay on them and I would stay on them and I would just, you know, I would try to find examples of, Hey, look, this is what I'm talking about. This is why you need to do this. And then finally we got smart as an NFLPA and said, we said, why are we continuing to do this? Make it hard on ourselves. Let's just automatically enroll everybody in. <laughs> so not like, I mean, let me tell you, it was, it was such a, a relief for all of us to not have to chase guys around. And then, you know, of course you have guys that got traded or, you know, cut and then, signed by another team. So every year there was 10 or 15 guys that got lost in the shuffle and never signed up for this 401k. And that's a loss. That's a shame. So we said, look, if you're on a, if you're on an opening day roster a week one, automatically enrolled in the 401k, you have to sign a form to opt out. So that was the best thing that happened to so many guys, because, you know, once you're done playing and you see, Hey, I played eight years in the NFL and you, you get a statement for your 401k. You're like, man, thank goodness I did that. And there are some guys that played eight years and maybe only enrolled in five. And that's to me, the biggest tragedy. That's really in, insightful too, especially, you know, the framing that individuals take to, to certain things and and certainly the amount of education some kind sometimes required to kind of understand it. It's just kind of like, you know, not having the belief that something's, you know, not in your benefit and really how much it kind of uh, really takes to get someone to, to, to really appreciate that. You mentioned at the front, you know, talking about how excited you were about the opportunity to play with the Giants. I also just want to kind of learn a little bit more um, around kind of the free agency process. You certainly enlightened us with your particular free agency process, but I know I think fans of all the teams out there always hope that their players are going to take a hometown discount because they love the organization so much. And so, of course, they want to resign. Certainly salary cap constraints, other things get in the way with that. But, you know, you, you talked a lot about this passion with the Giants and how much you thought about their ownership. And I'm curious how much you think that does or does not play a factor, if at all, in players' decisions to sign with certain teams. Like, are the Steelers, the Giants, and some of those, you know, really long-tenured ownership teams, um, those that players seek out, or is it really just about the best opportunity for their playing ambitions? I think there's, there's weight. In, in all of those aspects of it, you know, may, maybe not equally, but, you know, look, players talk and, and, and players that are coming out of college, they have teammates that were older than them that are on an NFL team and they'll hear stories about it. I had a, a, a teammate of mine at Rutgers who got drafted by a team um, in the second round and he would come back and work out. And, you know, I'd ask him, Hey, what's it like? What's this like? And, and he would say, man, yeah, that, well, I don't know how it is in other teams, but like, they charge us for gloves. If you have an extra pair of gloves, they, they, they take it out of your paycheck. If you uh, ask for an extra pair of cleats, they, they dock you pay. Like we had to pay for our own towels. Like and you would hear that and you're thinking, what, this is the NFL. They're like, they're, they're making you pay for this stuff. So look, team players talk about how different teams treat their players. You know, when I played for the Cleveland Browns and I came in there, they were unbelievable with how they treated players. And th there were certain things that they went that were just above and beyond you know, they would, if you wanted clothes dry cleaned or washed, you brought them in and every player had a, a little bag that you put stuff in. And then when you're done with practice, you'd come out and they would be waiting there for you. They would have a guy that would come wash your car. If you left $20 in your, in your car case, um, at the front desk, they would, your car would be, you know, sparkly clean when you came out for after practice, you know, there were different 
different things that different teams did. You know, for the Giants, a lot of teams give every player two tickets to every home game. Giants are one of the only teams, I think, in the NFL that they give all their players three tickets. So they give you an extra ticket, which doesn't sound a lot, but like when you're coming from another team and you're not used to that, it goes a long way. So I think for most NFL teams, like the one thing that they despise and that they would hate and, and, and would, would, it would give them anguish is if they heard a player talk about their franchise and their ownership and say, boy, they're cheap. Like that's like, that, that's like the big diss an NFL team or club can have somebody say about their team or their franchise is that boy, they're cheap. And so I think for, you know, for the giants, from my own experiences, you know, the way that they handled everything, you know, the way that they treat you. And then you couple that with the fact that you're playing you know, in front of the New York market, you, you play a game, you know, a home game, and then you go out to dinner in New York city and it's different, you know, it's, it's got a different vibe. You're, you're, you're kind of on a different stratosphere from that standpoint. So there's absolutely a draw in that. I know players, you know, they understand, look, if I'm, if I'm a star player and I'm in the Cincinnati Bengals, you know, market, my off the field potential is different in New York city or in Los Angeles or in Dallas or, you know, one of these high market teams. So, you know, that's something that players are aware of, you know, ultimately it's, you know, if you're a free agent and you're, you've got three teams that are looking at, you're going to start with the contract. All right. If a team is willing to pay you a million or $2 million more a year, that's a no brainer. But if it's apples to apples, all of those things come into consideration along with, you know, what kind of system am I in? You know, I think the coaching staff is, plays a big part in that as well, because when, when you go to training camp, you're basically, you're with your coaches six days a week and you spend more time with them than you do your wife or your kids or your family because it's just full tilt. So if you don't get along with the coaches, if you don't like them, if you don't respect them, you know, that that's going to make for a long season. So those are all, all factors in that. Um, and then I also think, look, when you guys see news of contracts, you know, Hey, this player signed a five-year deal for a hundred million dollars. Everybody always assumes, Oh man, they just made a hundred million dollars. No, you know, the, the biggest part of any contract is what is the guaranteed money? And that is something that has really grown exponentially in the last five to seven years for players, the guaranteed money in a contract, you could sign a five year, hundred million dollar contract. And if $20 million is guaranteed, then, and that for, and that $20 million is tied up in the first year or two of that contract, then the last three years of that contract are basically void. And that means that after two years, that team can cut you and that 75 or $80 that's remaining in those three years, you don't get a penny of that. So it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You know, you could sign someone to a 10 year, $500 million contract and they only played two years of that. And they, they got none of that, you know, that hundreds of millions. So, you know, there's a little bit of um, smoke and mirrors with some of that. The guaranteed money is always the biggest part of it. And language in a contract is usually ends up being the holdup whenever you see contracts taking a long time to get redone or re-signed uh, because a lot of that, you know, teams want to protect themselves. So the guaranteed money can be guaranteed only for injury. If you get hurt while you're playing, that's guaranteed. If you do something stupid, these teams want to be able to recover some of that guaranteed money, you know, and, and, and we've seen certainly that play out in front of all of us. And just kind of thinking about that. So like the NBA is mostly fully guaranteed contracts and you kind of see all these really tradable contracts where in the NFL, you see, you know, different players, depending on the contract situation, the team's kind of cap situation, get cut at different stages before maybe fulfilling their, their full contracts, I'm trying to take as objective of an approach as you can uh, from both the player perspective, as well as the, the ownership perspective. Do you think, you know, the trend towards fully guaranteed contracts is something that's good or do you think that, you know, having some of those financial outs, you know, is important, even if it's perhaps a little bit more challenging on the player? Yeah, I don't, I don't think it's good. Uh, I don't think guaranteed contracts are good in football. Football is a different sport. In, in the NBA and baseball, you know, the injury rate is very low. So you can sign a five-year deal in baseball or in the NBA. And, you know, aside from a catastrophic injury, you're, you're going to play those five years. You're going to play that contract out. And in the NFL, a guaranteed contract will actually hurt players in the long run because if a player signs a five-year hundred million dollar guaranteed contract and he gets hurt in year two and can't play ever again well for the next three years that team is now on the hook 
to pay that player. And guess what? They can't pay the next player. So if they a center for five years, $100 million, or five years, $50 million, and he gets hurt. And in year three, they sign me and they bring me in. They're going to say, well, Sean, we can't pay you what you're worth because we're paying this other guy who's not going to be able to play ever again. So it, it would almost – it would hinder – uh, the next guy that came in, and it's bad business for the owners. I think it's also bad for players because, look, players are human too, and and I think that there's something there's something that innate in in, in all of us, in, in ingrained in us, that you, you've got to earn it. And I think that that's a big part of of players. Um, a lot of times, players get a guaranteed contract in that first year or two that they sign a contract. They're not the same player that they were when they were playing year to year. So there was a little bit of a carrot that should be dangled. And I, and I think for football, especially, you know, and, and I've talked to a number of people about this, that the biggest fear with a get fully guaranteed contract for players is what's the incentive for players to play hurt. So now you have a player that sprains a knee. Well, Hey, you know what? I'm guaranteed for the next five years. Like I'm not going to play hurt. I'm going to wait till I'm hundred percent. And that's just, that's not that's not good for the team. That's not good for the player. Um, certainly not good for the ownership. Um, so those are those are things that I think when you kind of look at it, you know, Kirk Cousins signed a three-year guarantee, fully guaranteed deal. Quarterbacks are kind of in a little bit of a different conversation. You know, you guarantee a quarterback contract, the chances of him getting hurt are, are different than a defensive end or a linebacker or a running back. Um, the the injury rate in the NFL. 100%. Like if you're, if you're, if you're playing in the NFL, it's not a matter of if you get hurt, it's a matter of when and how long are you going to miss? Wow. That's really great insight. I do want to quickly turn to 2007, which I imagine is a, is a year near and dear to your heart. So, you know, I'm remembering game, the 16th and final game at the time was the Patriots coming to giant stadium at the time they're 15 and zero, And I think had really just blown out just about everyone um, so far during the regular season. And I, I'm just looking this up now, and I remember, you know, the Giants played them pretty close. I think they end up losing by three points or so in that final game. My question is kind of what gave you guys kind of the confidence in that game? And also how important was that game to eventually, you know, when you face the Patriots again in the Super Bowl, to give you all the confidence then to know that you could kind of pull out the, the Super Bowl victory? Yeah, no doubt. We don't win the Super Bowl. We don't win Super Bowl 42 if not for that Week 17 game. I think there, there were lot of reasons for us to play that game you know obviously them being undefeated was a big part of it you know I remember coach Coughlin said right out of the gate you know look we're going to play to win this game we're not resting starters we're not you know we're, we're not just going to play starters for the first half like the, the the goal is to win um and I think that resonated with all of us I think we took it as a challenge um and you know look in the NFL the one of the toughest things to do as a team is to really gauge how good are you, you know, because you can win a game one week and you think, wow, we're one of the best teams in the NFL. And then the next week you lay an egg and you get thumped by 20 by a team that you, you everybody said you should have beat. Now you stink. So it's always hard to have a barometer during the season of, all right, who's the best team and are we playing them when they are the best team? You know, you can beat a team in week three and, you're like, all right, you know what? They were just an average team when we played in week three, but then that team wins 10 games in a row. That's not the same team in December beating week three. So it's not always about who you're playing, but it's when you're playing them. For us, it was, this is the best team in the NFL right now, hands down. They're undefeated. They're the number one seed. We had nothing to lose really. And I think the biggest thing for us was it gave us confidence that, yeah, we could hang. And not only could we hang, but we felt like we could beat them. So he, regardless of the final score, the opening drive was the biggest statement of that entire game for us. We took the opening drive all the way down the field and we scored a touchdown on that very first possession and we bloodied them when well, we bludgeoned them. I still have the visual of Brandon Jacobs. He caught a, a little check down pass from Eli and he ran over Bruski, ran through Rodney Harrison at some point in that drive. And we kind of stood up to them as, hey, if you guys are the bullies of the NFL right now, we're not scared. And we bloodied them in that first drive. And we, from that moment on, we felt like, hey, we can play with the best in the NFL. That gave us the confidence, and we carried that into the playoffs and then, you know, finished off uh, with the Super Bowl. But that, that was paramount to our success and really paramount to our confidence. 
Sean, I, I want to thank you so much. This was a truly enjoyable conversation. And I, I know uh, very insightful for a lot of our listeners. Um, before we do a sign off, I want to turn over to you for any parting thoughts. Well, Peter, yeah, this has been great. It's always fun to uh, kind of take a trip down memory lane. You know, I started off by talking about my career and how people look at the finish line. So I, I'll just say, you know, just like my career, how, you know, things started out a little differently and had a different path, but finished well. It was very symbolic of that season that we just talked about. You know, people look at the 2007 season and they look at the fact that we won the Super Bowl and people forget that we started out 0-2. And people, after we lost two games in a row, they wanted to get rid of Eli. They thought he was a bust. They wanted to fire Tom Coughlin. And you know, then we rallied back one, six games in a row. And, and then we, we found a way to get in the playoffs. And throughout the playoffs, we, we got hot. And so I think, you know, that season is, is a great example, too, of it's not how you start, it's how you finish. And, and I think, um, you know, just like my career, it's the same, same thing. So um, I want to just, you know, challenge anybody out there uh, who has aspirations and who has goals. Um, you know, don't, don't get disappointed. Don't get discouraged. If you, you come across a hardship, that, that's there to make you stronger. And, you know, once you, once you find a way to, to gain that strength and, and to overcome that obstacle, you'll be stronger for the next hurdle that comes your way. Because inevitably, as Tom Coffin used to say, once you climb one mountain, you realize that there are many more mountains to climb. Sean, that's, that's great. And, and thank you so much for joining us today. Um, and thank you, of course, to all of our listeners as well. And remember to visit www.yieldtreat.com to learn more about our offerings and come to realize your next level with us. Thank you and see you again next week. All right. Thanks, Peter. Go Big Blue. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of The Yield. For the latest updates on the alternative investing space, go to yieldstreet.com. Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher. If you enjoyed the show, feel free to leave a review on Apple Podcasts as this will help other investors like yourself find our show. If you have any questions, please visit us at yieldstreet.com. Thanks again for listening and see you next week. The Yield Street podcast you just heard only reflects the opinions of the host, who is an associated person of Yield Street and does not necessarily reflect the views of Yield Street or any of its affiliates or other associates. The podcast is for informational purposes only and is not intended to be and should not be construed as a recommendation to buy or sell any security and is not an offer or sale of any securities or investment product. The podcast is also not a research report and is not intended to be and should not be construed as investment advice. Support for this podcast comes from Yield Street. Trying to time the stock market can lead to regret. At Yield Street, our alternative investments are designed to create predictable secondary income streams, providing you with tools to help put your money to work immediately. These investments in asset classes like art, real estate, and legal finance typically have low correlation with the stock market and target annual yields up to 7 to 10%. Welcome to the next generation of investing. Welcome to Yield Street. Sign up today at yieldstreet.com.